Hello, and thanks for listening to the Opioid Response Network Soundbites on Substance Use Disorders podcast series. I'm your host, Amy Shanahan. This is season one from the Stimulants Workgroup, where we're digging into stigma, stimulants, and the fight for treatment equity. In this episode, Dr. Francis Levin and Dr. Steve Shoptaw discuss evidence supporting use of a limited set of medications as a foundation for treating stimulant use disorder. They will also share considerations for people with co-occurring conditions. Welcome to Medications for Stimulant Use Disorder, a foundation for integrated care. Hi, uh, my name is Francis Levin, and I'm the host for this podcast. I'm the Kennedy Levy Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University and the Director of the Division on Substance Use Disorders at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. I am truly delighted to introduce our guest, Dr. Steve Shoptaw. Dr. Steve Shoptaw is a clinical psychologist and professor in the Departments of Family Medicine and Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at UCLA. He leads research, clinical, and policy efforts to bring novel and high-impact strategies to improve delivery of care for persons affected by stimulant use disorder and co-occurring conditions. Um, I'm really excited to be here today because I've really followed your work for so many years, Steve, and um, we've been colleagues for many years. And I'm really curious to get some of your thoughts on a number of issues. One of them is, what is the evidence for considering medications as a foundation for treating stimulant use disorder? Well, Francis, it's great to be here. And absolutely, you're a great friend from many years. And it's, we've, we've worked on this problem. It's a sticky problem. Years ago, when we first started working on this issue, there were no medications. And the signals weren't strong. But But we kept working at the issue, and today it's really good to be able to have a conversation with you in our field about how it's time to think about uh, moving stimulant medications into the treatment system for people who are living with stimulant use disorder. There is strong evidence from very large trials, from replication trials. We can get into that in a second. But this is really requiring a shift in our clinicians and how they think about treating people with stimulant use disorder. That They're so used to hearing there are no FDA-approved medications. That's the first thing we hear all the time. There's no FDA-approved medications, and there's still none. But what we do have is some medications, a limited set with some strong evidence of efficacy. So for the first time, we have ways that we can help people. And I'm super excited about that. Yeah. It's interesting. What do you think, before we get into the specifics of the medications, what do you think are some of the reasons why there has been a a reaction not to consider medications? Is it because that's the first thing people hear is that there's no FDA approved? Do you think it goes deeper than that? I mean, what are, what are your thoughts and what, what can we do to overcome that, uh, that view that people have about this? It's a great question, Francis. You know, it takes a long time for innovation to be integrated into health systems. Um, but there's also other aspects of this that make me think it's not just the health system slowness. I think that, you know, there are behavioral therapies like contingency management that are still largely absent in the treatment system. Um, I think that the issue here is stigma. My mentor and your friend, Walter Ling, often said, you know, we want to treat people who use stimulants well, but we want, we want to treat them. We just don't want to treat them that well. So the idea here about taking resource and allotting it to treatment, to treatment programs for people who have 
uh, addiction problems is something that we still as a nation have a hard time figuring out how to do. Mm -hmm. Right. No, that's true. And, you know, what do you think are the important contexts to recognize when using of medications as a foundation? Like, you know, I've heard you speak a couple of times about it being a foundation rather than an afterthought. Um, so what do you think the contexts are when that should occur? That's something I've been thinking a lot about. You know, the idea here about a medication as a foundation is important because a medication that works is something that provides people support for their drug use problems that they don't have to think about. It just happens. So we have plenty of evidence for this. Like we've trialed, we've trialed a lot of smoking cessation treatments, medications for stimulant use disorder. And what happens is their stimulant use disorder doesn't change, but the smoking behavior does, which shows that these medications work. So the idea mm -hmm. here of being able to equip our patients with something that can actually help them, that they don't have to spend psychological resource or any other type of resource to be able to benefit from is great. And then on top of that, you can build things like contingency management, like cognitive behavioral therapy. You can use 12-step approaches. You can build on top of this the idea of recovery houses and all kinds of other ways that you can interdigitate behavioral and social um, resources for people with the medication to be able to optimize their outcomes. We as a field have yet to get to this point. We think if we have a medication, it should be the end-all and be-all. Or if we have a behavioral therapy, it's, it's, we have a be-all and end-all. But the point is, we are complex human beings and we require integrated strategies, every single one of us. And so the idea here, about I, I object to the idea that we have to have a medication as the only way to do this. We need to think about these integrated strategies. Another example of this is, Okay, you've got a great medication combination for stimulant use disorder. We've been working on one for methamphetamine use disorder. But when you actually use these medications for people who may be having stimulant-related psychoses, these medications are not going to fix that. You know, th there are medications for psychosis. Um, that's what we should be using for helping people when they show up with that problem, even though it's related directly to their stimulant use disorder. The idea here is to treat the problem we see and to understand that these medications are helpful, um, but they also need to be thought about in the context where you see the patient. Right, right. And the idea is, is that, you know, you're not going to give every patient these combinations, which we'll talk about in a minute, but that you have to sit in the room with the patient and figure out what's the best strategy for him or her. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly what it is. It's just that the idea here is that the menu of options just got longer, which is really mm -hmm. great. We're working on that here in Los Angeles. We're working with a local CBO that has a lot of gay men who use methamphetamine in, in treatment, um, and they've been focusing on all kinds of behavioral ways to work with their patients. And now we're adding medications and we're actually building a menu, you know, that the clinicians can use to say, you know, here's what you can use to reduce methamphetamine use or cocaine use. Here's what you can use to build support. Here's what you can use to build um, uh, jobs and housing. You know, the, this sort of integrated strategies approach is, is unfortunately kind of new. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, we've been talking around it, but maybe more directly now you could talk about what you have seen as being promising interventions, um, certainly 
the large trial that you've been involved with, with methamphetamine use disorder, but, you know, your sense of the literature, I know that could be a whole hour talk in and of itself. And yeah. Uh, but but um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Thanks. Yeah, so so we're at this very fortunate stage. We have a very large trial that Maduka Trevetti led, and it was I'm the anchor author on this, using evaluating um, extended release naltrexone every three weeks injections, plus daily bupropion, 450 50 milligrams compared to placebo. And what we saw was that we saw about a 15 to 18% reduction in methamphetamine use across the study. Um, that was significantly different than people treated with placebo. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a good, strong signal for the medication. 403 patients, so it's a very large trial, the largest trial ever conducted. Um, very well powered, and we're thinking about how to take this next, to take this signal and build on it, the foundation, and then build on it. Um, you know, in, in terms of methamphetamine trials, we also have um, uh, mirtazapine, 30 milligrams a day, has two trials showing efficacy. And as you know, the hardest thing to do in science is the same thing twice. And in these randomized control, placebo-controlled trials, Grant Colfax and Phil Coffin were able to show in separate trials that among men who have sex with men and transgender women, 30 milligrams of mirtazapine reduced methamphetamine use about 15 to 18%. So a good, a good handle on these studies is that the number needed to treat for, the, uh, mirtaz uh, for mirtazapine was 8. For the combination trial of extended release naltrexone and high-dose bupropion was 9. Um, so that means, you know, of every eight or nine patients, you're going to see somebody who has that response, which is a really strong response. Some people I've actually talked to say, Steve, this is really not anything. And then I have to remind them that the number needed to treat of oral naltrexone for heavy drinking days is 12. So we're already below the bar where we have the FDA approving medication for alcohol use disorder. And it's, it's certainly in that sweet spot of what we what we like to use in our treatments for people with these disorders. In terms of cocaine use disorder, you know, your, your group has been really shaping the field on this. And, you know, we, we, your trial with extended release mixed amphetamine salts, 60 and 80 milligrams compared to placebo for people living with ADHD, is really remarkable, showing a dose response that if you see at higher doses of the, AD, uh, of the mixed amphetamine salts, extended release, you see a better reduction in cocaine use. Um, the middle dose, the lower dose does okay and certainly significantly better than placebo. Um, you built on that and with John Mariani and your group and uh, Kyle Campman, you integrated topiramate in people in evaluating cocaine use uh, patients with cocaine use disorder, not ADHD, um, and saw, again, the same thing twice, the hardest thing to do in science, showing about a 18 to 20% reduction of cocaine use um, by using the extended release mixed amphetamine salts at 60 milligrams and the topiramate at uh, 200 milligrams. So, so these are really robust findings. Um, when I talk to physicians, they get kind of excited about it. They, these, these things actually work and people are actually starting to pick up the prescription pad and, 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 to, and to, to, um, to write for these. Right. Well, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the, the things that I hear from naysayers, so I'd l I would love to hear your response back, is, you know, there was some data suggesting that bupropion worked alone for methamphetamine use disorder and that um, maybe in lighter users, but there was one 
secondary analysis that suggests maybe even in all users. Uh, and naltrexone, the results have been mixed. And what I've heard back from the from people in the field who are sort of the naysayers is that, well, you know, the the definitive trial is forearm trial. That all this large study did was combine two medications. And we really need to know about what they would have done individually. What what would be your response to that? Because I get the same thing about my studies with cocaine. So I'm curious to see what you say when people bring that up to you. Well, it's interesting because, you know, my thinking has emerged from where it started. I, I used to think kind of what you were thinking. We need this dismantling strategy. But actually, um, we've been doing some secondary analysis on the ADAPT study. It's the, the, for, the, the uh, medication combination trial. Um, and uh, a, a, prof- a junior professor from your group and I are looking at um, the response to the mixed amphet- or, I'm sorry, the extended release naltrexone and high dose bupropion in men who have sex with men, which is a large sample, it's 150 of them, um, versus heterosexual men, it's about 100. And what we see is that there's this uh, significant difference in terms of responding to this medication combination for the men who have sex with men compared to the heterosexual men. Um, We've been having this going back and forth about what might that be about. Um, We look at the sex partners, it's the same. We look at the drug-sex interaction, it's the same. So there's just something going on here, and and we've kind of been toying with this idea that naltrexone um, is working on impulsivity. And so the issue of impulsivity is going on, but the bupropion sharpens attention and focuses. So so I, I kind of now move to the point of rejecting the idea of the dismantling strategy, that the medication seems to be working by together, that the, if naltrexone is actually addressing a, an issue around impulsive decision-making and the bupropion is working on helping to focus attention and maybe maybe prevent some withdrawal um, symptoms or maybe just help people feel a little brighter and sunnier, um, that, that actually, that combination is what is actually helping people over placebo. So I, I think I would prefer not to do that dismantling strategy. I think that what we do is after 30 years, we have a medication combination that works. Let's right. build on that and then build in behavior therapy, social support, whatever it might be to, to, to push efficacy better. Right. Well, it sounds like it's much more of a practical approach, you know, that you found something, it was well tolerated, and trying to dismantle it would take hundreds of patients and that we need to, there's an urgent need to move forward and, and work with what we have is what I'm hearing. Yeah, exactly. And and then to work with what we have, build upon that, and then look for other agents that might be helpful. So, like, mm-hmm. there are other things going on in the field. There's a chelating molecule that's being developed. There's an antibody that's being developed. There's different strategies that may be helpful to people who don't respond to this medication combination who might respond to another medication. So, so I think that I, I personally feel done with this. I mean, we need to, like, really kind of build on now. How do we get it out there, and how do we build upon this, this signal? What do you think are some of the practical limitations of getting it out there? Or have you heard anything from the from people in the uh, clinicians about how to uh, provide these two medications, particularly given that, at least in the study, naltrexone was extended release naltrexone was given every three weeks rather than the standard every four weeks. Does that make it harder to prescribe? I don't think so. I think the issue is that 
the prescribers learn about the medications they prescribe when they're in their training program receiving uh, supervised experience. So what I think we need to do is just increase the number of people who prescribe and see what happens. An example of this is we have an HIV provider here that works downtown um, in a very, very vulnerable group of people who are using methamphetamine. He picked up the prescription pad for the extended release naltrexone and high-dose bupropion combination, and he's not seeing one in eight respond. He's seeing one in four respond. So, so the huh. idea could be that you know these the, the, these sort of settings could interact with these medication um, uh, experiences and and outcomes, and that that what we need to do is just get people to trial this stuff, put it into their you know make a make it a clinical trial in their own practice, an N of one sort of thing of just see what happens when you use these medications, um, and 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 see how the people's lives are bettered as a result of having the medication on board. I think that's the most powerful thing we need to do. Mm -hmm. And then uh, supporting it, do you think, do you happen to know, like would Medicaid or any Medicare support the cost of these meds or, or what is, have you known anybody in the field that has experience in in doing that? Absolutely. So, so what ends, that's a great question. Uh, Extended release naltrexone injections are expensive, right? They're $1,100 or whatever. I don't know what they are, but they're, they're a lot of money. Um, and, and the idea here is, you know, you know, p- p- people can write off label for these. So this thing of using a, if there's an alcohol problem, you might be able to use the extended release naltrexone or an impulsivity problem. Um, you could certainly do that. And certainly for depression or smoking, you can use for bupropion. So there's ways in which you know, creative writing can happen um, uh, to be able to get Medicaid to cover this. And, and certainly, you know, that's been the experience that I'm hearing out there that this, the, the issue is not funding. The issue is the willingness to write the prescription. Right, right. Well, we know that at least half patients, at least I know from my experience with cocaine, have meet criteria for alcohol use disorders. Exactly. So, so you have another rationale for prescribing this combination. Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. My, my other question, to change topics just a minute, uh, is that, you know, there are other key occurring conditions to stimulant use disorders that obviously need to be considered. And you alluded to it when you first described the complicated patient population that we, we see. Um, how do you think about that when using medications to treat uh, stimulant use disorders? So so it's a great question. So like, for, an ex- for example, mirtazapine 30 milligrams. Mirtazapine is an approved antidepressant. So the idea about using an antidepressant, particularly among gay men who are often susceptible to the depression that either occurs as a part of withdrawal or has it as a pre, pre, you know, pre-existing condition is, is really something that we need to think about. We, we can't think about people in terms of like these bins that they, you treat the addiction medicine issue and you ignore the psychiatry mental health issue. It's all got to be in the same, um, the same uh, approach. So the idea here about using mirtazapine is great because you could argue that the, method, the, the 
the the antidepressant aspect of things works. We know that for the most part, and you know, your group at Columbia has shown that using antidepressants to address cocaine use or methamphetamine use largely doesn't work. But the idea of using other antidepressants as well as this medication, as long as there's no side effects or some sort of interaction, I think it makes a lot of sense. And and the issue about if you're talking about people who have psychosis as a result of ongoing uh, methamphetamine or cocaine use disorder, the idea of managing that psychosis, whether it shows up as a result of, you know, the the medication, or, I'm sorry, the untreated stimulant use disorder or an underlying psychotic disorder needs to be addressed, and that that's only can be treated using medications. So, right, right. And um, what about medical conditions? Do you how often does that fall in or HIV in in terms of these medications? Is there any interactions you need to worry about, or is it are these medications we're prescribing fairly safe regardless of? the medical comorbidity. So so it turns out that both of these medications the for methamphetamine use disorder and as well the 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 stimulant and topiramate for cocaine use disorder are very well tolerated across most pathology groups. I mean, there may be a rare interaction that you have to be careful of, but by and large, HIV medications have no few interactions with these with these drugs, um, and so, so so they can be integrated easily within um, HIV care regimens, as well as other sorts of medications, if it's, if it's insulin-dependent diabetes or if it's some sort of other physical problem, there's really very little to worry about with these medications. Now, an advantage of the uh, combination for um, the extended-release naltrexone and high-dose bupropion is we see ad libitum smoking reduce as a result of the combination itself. So that, again, is that point about how an active medication does something, and the bupropion, which is marketed as Zyban, is a smoking cessation um, um, agent that's FDA-approved. So we, we do know that if you take this medication combination in people who, are metham- who have methamphetamine use disorder, and a majority of these folks are smoking cigarettes, they will reduce their smoking, which, by the way, is a, a life-saving thing, too. Mm-hmm. So there, there's this idea that there's substitution, that if you reduce their methamphetamine use or their cocaine use, they're going to increase their alcohol or some other drug use is not the case, no. that it goes in the opposite direction. No, no it, right. it really doesn't. I mean, we've not seen any sort of uh, you know, sort of response bias in that direction where people are will... will head off in a different direction. Um, So this has been a really interesting discussion, Steve. And, um, you know, I've learned a lot talking with you today. Um, I'm just curious whether there are any sort of major take-home messages. I think you brought some of them up at the beginning, but maybe either you want to reiterate them or there are other things that you want to make sure that people walk away from from this uh, podcast today. Yeah. Thanks, Francis. I mean, it's been a wonderful career working with people who have stimulant use disorder. Um, I find it to be very wonderful and reinforcing. The things that I would say are, number one, that we have evidence to support the use of medications in treating stimulant use disorder. It's a chronic relapsing condition, and our people struggle to meet their substance use goals. We need to start as a field adopting 
these medications for treating people with stimulant use disorders and to use that foundation to build a number of interventions, whatever it is that addresses exactly the person in front of us. That's individualized medicine. We're trying that in every other field and we should be leading in that respect here as well. The second thing I think we need to do is to focus on implementation and scaling up these, these medications and getting them broadly through the treatment system. So we need to be able to make sure this is happening. And then the third thing is to re-energize medicinal chemistry to logically think about medications that can address aspects of living with stimulant use disorder specifically, whether that's taking methamphetamine or cocaine off the human body to reverse overdose, or whether it's providing antibodies that allow people to have a protection, or a long-acting medication that could either be stimulant-based or some other sort of focus on providing treatments for people with stimulant use disorder. And then finally, this idea, back to the point that I started with, is integrated strategies. We are complex people. Stimulant use disorder makes us even more complex, and our treatments need to be as complex and as effective as we have people to treat. I think that's a final great comment, so I'm not going to add to that. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for joining in for the Sound Bites on Substance Use Disorder series on stigma stimulants and the fight for treatment equity. If you want to learn more about stimulant use disorder, find no-cost resources for training, or need assistance addressing substance use disorders in your community, we can help. Connect with the ORN at opioidresponsenetwork.org.